Well, let me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. It's the Feast of Saints Simon and Jude. No relation, but I can at least aspire. Well, considering that I need all the holiness I can get, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us, by that same Spirit, to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Let's look at the Gospel first. Luke, the 6th chapter, the 12th verse and following. Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. Now, up the mountain to pray, that I'm sure I've explained this before, but the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a very large lake, is below sea level. Seriously, the Jordan Rift Valley is one of the lowest places on earth. The Dead Sea is, I believe, the lowest place on the surface of the earth. As such, it is very hot and very tropical. And and uh, the Sea of Galilee, I think, is is about 300 feet below sea level. You go down the road uh, from from the the, the, the the flatland, the tableland above, and uh, you uh, go past a sign that shows you where sea level is. And the 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 Sea of Galilee, the Lake Genesaret, as it's also called, is significantly below sea level. So when it says Jesus went up the mountain, he went up into the drier uh, uh, highlands. He's not going up a physical mountain, but he spent the night in prayer to God. This is amazing to me, because we believe Jesus is God, the Son of God. Uh, however, he spent the night in prayer to God. What can that possibly mean? That he wasn't really God? No. Remember, Jesus taught us that God is a solidarity, not a solitude, as St. John Paul the Great said. Uh, <clears throat> that that God is the perfect family. And so he went up, let, let's put the word family in, he spent the night in asking his family. <laughs> I, that's a don't don't quote me on that. That's a pretty loose translation. But remember, prayer means to ask or, or to commune with. So lifting, prayer is the lifting of our hearts and minds to God. So in a sense, he went home. He spent the night 
uh, in the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit up on the mountain. So I don't think you need to uh, uh, worry about uh, Jesus not being fully God. In, in when the Scripture seems to see Him speaking to God, He He is lifting heart and mind, His humanity, to that relationship of which he is part. Uh, <clears throat> we see, he says, I go to your God and my God. What is God but the greatest reality? That, that's the definition of God, that reality greater than which there is nothing. And for Jesus, the Father most certainly was his God and the Holy Spirit. And one can say in this sense that the greatest reality in the life of the Father is Jesus, his Son. And the Holy Spirit. So so that's the Holy Spirit being the love that they share, the perfect love. All right, just I wanted to talk about that. Well, when the day came, he called his students, his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Remember, the word apostle means missionary. So he called his students to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named missionaries. So you see this phrase, the twelve. You'll see this throughout Scripture, the twelve. Uh, in fact, is at one point when there's only eleven of them, they're still called the twelve. Uh, he appeared to the twelve. Judas was not among them after the resurrection. We see that in First Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Sometimes it talks about the eleven, but this idea of the twelve, when you see the word twelve in Scripture, it, it means government. Twelve tribes, twelve gates to the city, twelve thrones of judgment. Uh, 12 G book of judges it's about government so from them he chose a governing body people who say well jesus didn't really intend to establish a church they're not reading the scriptures well he chose 12 whom he also named missionaries and i'm always telling you there were lots of missionaries the eastern church talks about the 72 missionaries or the 70 missionaries or the 72 apostles the 70 apostles and uh all of the all of the twelve were missionaries, but not all of the missionaries were members of the twelve. So they are not mutually inclusive sets, as they would say in math. Well, let's look at them. Simon, whom he named Peter. Remember, Peter Kepha in in uh, in Aramaic it means the rock. Simon, whom he named Rock, uh, and I believe Peter isn't really his name; it's his title. His name was Simon Barjona, and he was Rock upon this rock. Uh, uh, and you see that in the dome of St. Peter's. His brother Andrew, James and John, who were brothers, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called a zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. So we see he's got two Simons. He's got uh, two Jameses. He has got uh, uh, and two Judases. Six of the disciples shared names. That's because the names were very uh, limited among among the Jews at the time of Christ. They were named for the great heroes of the faith, uh, great heroes of Israel. And so, of course, would be one. Judas is, is Yehuda in, in, in Hebrew and in Aramaic. Uh, and and uh, uh, James is Jacob, and Simon is Shimon. So these were very, very common names. Now, interesting, James, the son of Alphaeus. There is the two James theory and the three James theory. Uh, some days I'm a, a proponent of the two James theory. Other times I'm a proponent of the three James theory. Let's go with the two James theory. 
<laughs> the voice might just said, depends on how you're feeling. Exactly. And today I'm in a good mood, so we'll do the two James theory. You've got James, who is the brother to John. He's James, the son of Zebedee. He's the first of the apostles, or first of the 12, to be martyred. Uh, so who's this other guy? James, uh, son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus may be the same name as Cleophas or Clopas. There were different spellings and different pronunciations of the same name. Just as people call me Richard or Rich or Rick, there are all these different nicknames for my name. Uh, so it was then. Well, if this James is the son of Cleophas or Clopas, he would have been a relative of Jesus probably because the uncle of Jesus uh, was named Cleophas or Clopas, sometimes Alpheus. It's very confusing, and it's impossible to say for sure which it is. But we do see, very interesting, on the road to Emmaus, that one of the disciples was Cleophas. It may have been Jesus' own uncle, uh, a brother of Joseph. So this would have been a, a close relative of Jesus. That's all, to me, that's kind of interesting. You've got to get your Jameses straight, especially when you're talking in the Bible. And you got to get your apostles, your 12, and your disciples straight. Because it sounds like, you know, Paul went and he had a hard time with the apostles. He didn't have a hard time with the 12. He had a hard time with the apostles. And we're going to talk about that when we get to the first reading in just a moment. Uh, but to me, the interesting thing about this is he he picked 12 people who by rights should not and did not necessarily get along. And I think that should remind us of something in the church, that the Lord pairs us up with people we might not like. We might not like everyone in the parish, or we might not like the pastor, heaven forfend. Uh, but he calls us together. Uh, <clears throat> Simon and his brother Andrew, and then you got James and John, who seem to have been the sons of Zebedee who had money. And they really upset people when they said, when their mother said, we want, we want, I want my sons to sit on either side of you when you are enthroned in glory. And Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking for. And then you go on to uh, Matthew, who is also called Levi, most probably. And he was a tax collector, a traitor to his country. Then you had Simon, who was a zealot, who was a fanatical patriot. He seems a zealot that usually referred to someone who was in... Uh, a group of violent uh, uh, insurrectionists. So you got a, a guy who works for the Romans and a guy who's trying to kill the Romans, all in the same in the same basket. <clears throat> so, there. I think this is just very, very interesting. So you got all these Jameses, and you got Judas, son of James. It's it could make you a little bit crazy. All right, if you have, well, some of us, of course, have a head start at that. All right. Now, let's look at the first reading. This is a gorgeous reading. Ephesians, the second chapter, the 19th verse and following. You are no longer strangers and sojourners. Hmm, strangers and sojourners. Uh, that word, uh, the strangers, are xenoi, which means foreigners. You're no longer foreigners. Uh, and, uh, um, or, or, uh, Paroki. That, that means sojourners. It means a foreigner who had uh, uh, um, rights in a city, but he was not a citizen. He he had his he had he had his residency card. 
you know, that was uh, Xenos was someone who was a foreigner. Uh, uh, a Paraikos was someone who lived in the neighborhood. That that's kind of the idea. So that that to me is rather interesting in itself. So, and then the text goes on to say, let me pull up, but you are fellow citizens and the holy ones and members of the household of God. All right, let's, let's look at, let's look at uh, um, <clears throat> that in the, in the context, the Greek words. Okay. All right. You are members, sympolitai, your, your, your citizens, your fellow citizens of, of the saints, and uh, uh, members of the house. Uh, how, when we think of a household or house, we, the word oikos just means a house. Well, it had a lot of meanings in, in, in Greek. Uh, the oikos, the house was the common way to talk about the temple. But oikioi means someone who's in the family. You're members of the family. And a family didn't just consist of mom, dad, and the two and a half kids. A family was... was uh, it was extended. It included all the servants, the slaves, uh, <laughs> the in-laws. It, uh, houses were kind of these compounds in the ancient uh, world, at least among Jews. So uh, I just think I'm just kind of spending time with this because I think it's beautiful. This is the really interesting part to me. It's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And someone wrote in, Anna Maria wrote it and said, which prophets in another context? But there is a book, a glorious book called the Didache. It's it may be written now. Some scholars say it's written as early as 50 A.D., which means it's older than most of the New Testament. Most scholars would put it between 90 and 110 A.D. But it's very interesting. The third section of it is about apostles and prophets. Well, that's our phrase, isn't it? Uh, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Now, let me read from the Didache, the third section. Concerning apostles and prophets, act according to the gospel's teaching. Receive every apostle as the Lord. He should not stay for more than a single day or two days if necessary. But if he remains for three days, he is a false prophet. When he leaves, let the apostle receive nothing except bread until he finds a place to stay. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. Do not test or judge any prophet who speaks in the spirit. Every other sin will be forgiven. Everyone who speaks, not everyone who speaks in the spirit is a prophet, but only he who follows the ways of the Lord. From his behavior then, you will know a false prophet from a true prophet. Any prophet who orders a meal in the spirit will not eat from it. But if he does eat from it, he's a false prophet. Any prophet who teaches the truth but does not do the things he teaches is a false prophet. Uh, every true prophet, if he performs a worldly mystery of the church, what does not teach others to do likewise, uh, but does not teach others to do likewise, he must not be judged by you. He has judgment in the presence of God as with the prophets of old. If anyone says in the spirit, give me money, do not listen to him. <laughs> well, except, of course, <laughs> under certain circumstances. But if he tells you to give to others who are in need, let no one judge him. See, we're, I'm not telling you give me money. I'm telling you... Help help the poor and help relevant radio. That's different. See, I'm telling you to give others who are to give others who are in need. All right, I had to cover my my tracks on that one. I'll receive everyone who comes in the name of the Lord. If he's only passing through, help as much as he as you can. Uh, um, but he must not stay with you more than two or three days. Every true prophet who desires to settle among you is worthy of his food. Likewise, a true teacher like the worker deserves his food. Take every first fruit of the wine press and of the threshing floor of your oxen and of your sheep. Give the first fruit to your prophets, for they are your high priests. I, I read that at, at, at great length because, you see, in the early church, 
there were apostles and prophets, and there were some apostles who were also prophets, and some prophets who were apostles, missionaries. This this book was probably written in Syria. Uh, it's called the Didache. It's very easy to find online. D i d a c h e, and it it didn't. There's some people who thought it should go into the scriptures. Well, it didn't quite make it into the scriptures, but uh, you know, we we just assume that that we know what the early church was like. We don't. Uh, not without great study. And, you know, I think I've shared with you my, my experience of the Pentecostal movement and the, or charismatic renewal, whatever you choose to call it. I think it really did uh, replicate the experience of the church, of the early church, because there were so many problems. Not because it was so great, but because it was so, well, I'll say it, messed up. You know, that it, it, a lot of uh, people in that movement didn't want uh, any kind of pastoral oversight. And a lot of the pastors didn't want to oversee it, uh, and uh, it has had some good fruit, and it has had not some not some not good fruit. Just as the early church, the Didache didn't make it into the scriptures, and it was not normative. It seems to have been a little bit, kind of a, a sidebar of Christianity in Syria. But it is very interesting to read, uh, uh, for insight into the early church. So, uh, let, one more thing I need to talk about before we move along. Um, it, this, this, this household of God, this house of God. Remember, you remember the household of God built upon the foundation. Remember the oikos, it means a house. It also means the temple. So he's referring to the temple, which is the church, a temple of living stones, which we are. This temple built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Jesus, the Messiah himself, is the capstone. I, oh, I should have looked it up. Uh, oh, I can't. It's, it's, I think it's Ar- Arco- Archegonia. Uh, gosh, how oh, good. Now, no, of course, my, there we go. Let me see if I can find this. Okay, no, I can't. But it, trust me, that's the word. And it means the, Arche means, it means the head or the beginning. And they translate it as capstone. And... In Greek, it really is the head of the corner, which uh, it's hard to say. A capstone would be in an arch. You have, you build the arch on a wooden frame, and then you put a capstone in, and the weight of the stones press against the central stone, and it holds itself up even without mortar. That's one possibility for this. Now, the other possibility for it is that it is a stone laid at the corner. You have to lay the cornerstone perfectly because all the other stones will take their direction from it. And I think that the, the text will bear both both interpretations, both meanings. Uh, that that we lean on Christ to hold the thing up, that's a capstone, um, or we take our direction from Christ. If we're aligned with him, then we're going in the right direction. So, eh, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, there we go. Yes, it's Akrogonayu. My computer just let me see it. Akrogonayu. Let's see what they say for the translation of that. Okay. It means the corner, uh, uh, it means the extreme angle, the corner. Um, So they would translate it as exclusively a cornerstone. But I think the word mean, can mean both in Greek. So if Jesus is the capstone, the arch rests on him. If Jesus is the cornerstone, the building gets its orientation from lining up with that cornerstone. All right, that said, speaking of getting our, our alignment right, I think we should talk a little bit more about, well, 
Mass Hysteria. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us, Lord. Okay, I can only take so much of this. <laughs> that is a polka mass. And, uh, um, you know, I, my background is German. And the polka, as I understand it, is not really a Polish dance. I've spoken to people from Poland, and they say the polka, and they say the what? No, it is a German word meaning the Polish dance. But it really is a very German dance. And uh, when you really get going, uh, it's it's German aerobics. But the polka, I always say that in Wisconsin, all you need for a wedding reception is a barrel of beer, a ham, and an accordion. So I love the polka and that schmaltzy German music that one hears in Minnesota and Wisconsin. But it's not for mass. Well, it's so nice. I can hear people saying, oh, I went to a polka mass. It was so nice. Yeah, it was so nice. And my whole point in this is that's, uh, that, that, that for mass to be entertaining is not necessarily a good thing. I got a letter from someone hearing, uh, it was a rather long letter, but I thought, it, I think it's interesting. It's from uh, a fellow named Joey in Milwaukee. And, um, uh, he's about my age, maybe slightly older, and he disagrees with some of my comments. Okay, music, which goes back before I was born, that we're now singing in Mass, is dirge music, and a real turnoff for me. I'm not inspired in the least to sing. For instance, Ode to Joy is a hymn to which we, friends, when we are joking, sing using recipes and the phone book as lyrics. Ode to Joy can be sung. To... The Ode to Joy is a secular piece by... Uh, Beethoven, Freude, Schöne, Goethe, Funken, Talk, Joy, uh, Beautiful Spark of the Gods. Well, they took a nice melody and put words to it. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I love the hymns from Glory and Praise and the hymns written by those to whom you refer to as aging Jesuits. I don't know that I've ever called them that, but that's true. That music inspired attendees at Mass to participate. The lyrics mostly taken from the Bible, and I don't understand how it, that is interpreted as bad liturgical music, because it is adapted to the melody. And the point I'm trying to make here is that... How to say this? Martin Luther and John Calvin, the Reformers, I think Martin Luther was the very first person to say, he might not have been, maybe Wycliffe was, but he said, Mass is not a sacrifice. It is for the instruction and edification of the people. When you say that, and people are edified and instructed at Mass, no doubt about it, but when the purpose of the service is the edification and instruction of people, the object of the service ceases to be God, and it ceases to be worship. And that's the point. Mass is a sacrifice. It is aimed at the Lord. And I like hymns. I'm going to continue a little bit this about this when we get back, but we're going to go to a break real quickly, and then we'll be back, and I will continue to pontificate on this. 
888 888-914-9149. Call in. Rattle my chain. 888-914-9149. We'll be right back, I hope. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. I'm very fond of this song. You wouldn't think I would be being such a curmudgeon, but I, I love that song. It's from the uh, uh, Down the Mountain, or is it Up the Mountain, or Around the Mountain album from uh, uh, the movie Where, Brother Wherefore Art Thou. Well, I was ranting and raving about the idea that, that Luther was the first person in history, as far as I know, to say Mass was not a sacrifice. It, was, uh, uh, it, it is for the, the, uh, the consolation and instruction of the faithful. And I have known a lot of Lutherans, and I have known a lot of Protestants who really worship God. I mean, really, really worship God. Um, however, uh, built into our, our sacramental structure is the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Mass, which in its intention is supposed to be purely aimed at God. And the instruction and consolation, in a sense, are collateral, <laughs> a collateral blessing that 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 I think I've told you that story about the Orthodox Jew who uh, didn't believe in life after death, and he was scrupulous in his uh, obedience to the law of Moses and the dietary laws. And someone said, why are you so scrupulous about this? If you're not going to stand before God someday uh, and there's no judgment, why are you doing this? He said, because he's worthy. In other words, he believed and he knew there was a God. He didn't believe in the survival of death. But God, whether he survived death or not, whether this Jew survived death or not, God was worthy. And that to me is one of the most noble attitudes, that that God is worthy no matter what's in it for me. You know, there's a hymn that somebody mentioned in the letter uh, that they just love. Um, Oh, it's from Hulse Planets. Oh, what is that hymn? Everybody loves it. It's beautiful. Um, God beyond all praising. If our days are good or ill, we will rise to praise you still. That That's what Mass is about. Now, I, I want you to understand I am not opposed to hymns. I, I'm opposed to really lousy hymns that are just maudlin and they're designed to make us feel something uh, and nothing else. Uh, but... Uh, uh, a truly beautiful lyric in a truly beautiful melody does give glory to God. And there are places in, in Catholic worship where hymns are very important, such as in Vespers, Benediction, all of these different services. And even in the Mass, it is very traditional to have uh, music, especially sacred polyphony, um, at communion and even at the offertory after the, the, the verse has been sung. But my point is this. Uh, <laughs> at least I think my point is this, but it isn't going to stop me from grinding my axe. My point is that that for the music of Mass to become an entertainment defeats the purpose of Mass. And when we chant, 
we are doing something that unites us to the temple in Jerusalem and unites us to all about the ages and Christians yet to come. You do not think that they're going to be having poker matches in 200 years, provided there is a 200 years and the Lord doesn't, uh, provided as the Pentecostals say, the Lord tarries still. So, you know, I'm not against hymns. I'm against entertainment. And, 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 and that's kind of the point I'm making. Well, all right, let's go to letters. Okay, now let's see. I got a, a letter from, uh, from a correspondent here. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, whose, whose son died in, um, in, because of a drug overdose and she's praying he's, he's not in hell. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned this recently, but I, I really believe that you choose heaven or you choose hell. Well, that's crazy. Who would choose hell? The person who chooses himself over others, and I, I shared that story about the the um, the the, uh, the Michelangelo quote. Someone asked him once, "How you get saints and angels out of a block of marble?" He says, "Oh, it's easy. God puts the saint or the prophet or the angel in in the marble, and I just chip away everything that isn't the saint or the prophet." Um, and so it is. The Father looks at me, the Father looks at you, and he sees Jesus. And he begins to chip away everything that isn't isn't uh, Jesus. You know, that, that verse in the scriptures, Gospel uh, of John, uh, the Father trims away every branch that does not bear fruit. What's the fruit? Love, peace, patience, joy. That the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the very portrait of Jesus. So he looks at you and me and he begins to chip away those things that keep me from becoming Christ in, in my own, uh, in my own, uh, or reflecting Christ rather, uh, not becoming Christ, but reflecting Christ in my life. And God does his best work. Now, if you don't have your seatbelt on, put it on. Uh, if you're in the car, God does his best work, not in what he gives, but in what he takes away. I hate saying that. I hate it. That's my least favorite part of the gospel. But it's still in there. Those branches that do not bear fruit, he trims away. And those branches that do bear fruit, he trims back that they might bear more fruit. God wants you to bear fruit. And what is fruit? We read it in Galatians, the fifth chapter, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, peace, patience, joy. This, this list of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is the very description of Christ. And that's what God's doing in my life. He is chipping away everything that is not sacrificial love. Scripture says... He who loves, now the word is agape, he who loves sacrificially, knows God and is begotten by God. I want to say that unless you're in my club, you can't go to heaven. Unless you do it my way, you can't go to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that exactly. Uh, you know, this is in the hands of God, who, you know, the, the church has never definitively said someone is in hell, not even Judas. And I suspect there are a number of people in hell. I just don't want one of them to be me. Uh, and I, I think hell is a, uh, uh, is, is a reality, a necessary reality because of freedom. But the church has never said definitively someone is in hell. Um, it has canonized saints, but never demonized devils. Is that the way to put it? So, you know, if a person genuinely uh, loves sacrificially, 
that's God is sacrificial love, the scripture says. And, you know, we worry about our kids as well. We should. However, God, the father is much more anxious to get that person we love into heaven than we are. He's much more anxious to get that person into heaven than we are. And you got to trust God uh, and, and you do your best uh, to share the gospel and to share love with the people who need it. So I hope that that helps a little. Um, so, okay, where was I now? We got, uh, oh, that's going to be the word of the day. That's a fun one. Uh, let's see here. All right, let's see. I got a letter from someone about the four of all these 400 laws. This is from Lorenzo in San Luis Obispo. Hello, Father Simon. Moses came down the mountain with 10 laws. People needed more laws. Such was a good analogy. Never heard such. I stole it from Dr. Scott Hahn, I think. What were those other 400, what were those other like 400 laws? There were not 400, there were 603. There are 613 laws in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. And uh, they were codified, I think, was it, uh, oh gosh, was it Maimonides in the, in the Middle Ages who codified them as 613. The Ten Commandments are the reflection of God's nature. Thou shalt not kill. God is the giver of life. Uh, honor thy father and thy mother. Uh, we read in Ephesians that, uh, that uh, I fall on my knees to the Father of Jesus from every fatherhood uh, on, in heaven and on earth uh, receives its, its, its name. So, you know, the, uh, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness. God is truth. They reflect the law of, uh, they reflect the nature of God. They also reflect my nature as a human being. I do not want to be murdered, so I will not murder. I do not want to be stolen from, so I will not steal, etc. Well, what are these other 603 laws? Some of them are amplifications of the Ten Commandments. Some of them are about temple worship. And some of them, I think they're called the Chukim. They are just... You can't wear wool and cotton in the same garment. You can't eat, uh, uh, well, I don't know what the meat and milk that might have a moral, a moral dimension. Uh, what's another good one? Uh, uh, you can't bear, uh, I, I, let me think, I can't think of another one. The wheat, the, 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 you can't uh, sow the different seeds in the same field. What, these are just nonsense. Well, they exist to create the people Israel, to separate them from the world around them. Uh, uh, you can't work. Why not? Well, pigs are dirty. Have you ever seen a chicken? They're filthy. You know, that's not the reason. Just cook it thoroughly. Uh, so these laws that are the chukim that, that make no sense, they were to create a separate people and also to teach people obedience. There's a wonderful scene in the movie uh, Forrest Gump, in which Bubba and Forrest, Bubba is his buddy, they are made by the sergeant to clean the barracks floor with a toothbrush. What? That's a terrible way to clean a floor. It's not very efficient. No, but it's a very good way to make a soldier. He created <laughs> robots out of these two guys. So, uh, in a way, the Hukim, they're not a very efficient way to 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 create an ordered society oh but they are very efficient way to teach to create a society that is utterly obedient to god so that's what those laws are when the messiah came we no longer needed them to separate us from the world because the character of the messiah jesus 
imprinted in us does that completely. Jesus is the Torah, the law come to life. All right, that said, we're going to take a break. We will come back with a word of the day, a thrilling word of the day. And you can call in at 888-914-9149. We will be right back, I hope. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. got a letter that I'm going to use for the word of the day. That is, of course, if my computer will will cooperate. Uh, let's go to the word of the day. The letter is from Tim. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the fifth commandment is you shall not kill. Isn't the more accurate translation murder, not kill? While related, murder is very different than kill. Murder is the immoral killing of a human being. There's moral killing and immoral killing, correct? Well... I suppose, <laughs> seems to me to be a major difference, not a little one. Well, it's kind of interesting because the word kill, you're right on one level. The word to kill is, uh, what is it in Hebrew? Larag, something on that order. And the word murder is is quite different. It's, uh, it's um, oh gosh, what is it? It's Ritzah, I, I'd have to look that up. But um, yeah, there are two different words, however, uh, the more general word is uh, to kill, and that's what St. Jerome uh, chose. Well, uh, St. Jerome in the Vulgate uh, had a hard, had real problem. Uh, he, he, he had to um, pick a word, and the rabbis didn't agree on it. Um, uh, Let's see here. the 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 uh, the word harag it means to kill, slay, murder, destroy. It's used of Cain slaying uh, um, Abel, and it it. Uh, um, uh, let me see which. Oh, now I've confused which word is which. I actually looked this up. However, um, it is it is uh, retzak. I think is the word that's used in Thou shalt not. Uh, thou shalt, thou shalt not murder. So, strictly speaking, yeah, you're right, Ritzak. However, uh, Saint Jerome, when he translated the scriptures from the Septuagint and consulting the Hebrew text, uh, uh, he consulted with Jewish scholars. But even the Jewish translators weren't quite sure about the distinction between the 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 very the different Hebrew words. So Jerome chose the general word okchidere to kill because murder is a form of killing. But when you look at the the word retzak which is what it is in the text, it it's a very wide word. It can it can mean to slay. Uh, um, it can mean to execute a criminal. It means to basically obliterate. So um we can pick at, uh, um, at straws on this, and I think most people want to say that, oh no, that the the, uh, the 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 commandment does not forbid capital punishment. Um, I don't think it does, but 
it is it is Ritzach is a word that would be used uh, in capital punishment to slay the murderer. It would be the word Ritzach. Um, so it's six of one half a dozen of the other. Um, the the um, it's a little confusing. If it was confusing to Saint Jerome and the Jewish scholars when we consulted, it's going to be confusing to me. What do we do? This again points out in the scriptures when we're trying to interpret them, we rely on the consistent tradition of the church. That when you line up the fathers of the church with the scriptures, with with 2,000 consistent years of teaching, then you're pretty sure you're reading the scriptures with the intention uh, with which they were written. So you can't interpret scripture. Uh, scripture is not a self-interpreting book. It just is not. Uh, so at, at any rate, I, I found that an interesting letter, and I, I wanted to share it. So, all right, let's go to phone calls. Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? Mark from Lancaster, California. What's your question for me, Mark? Okay, Father, here's my question. So I'm using uh, your story about the Orthodox Jew who said that he um, uh, followed the Mosaic Law uh, because God was worth it, because he was yes, worthy. he was worthy. So my question yes. for you, right. Now, I think St. Paul in the letter to the Romans said, what does Christ have to do with, I think the word is Galil? Which means Yes, which means yes. what? Doesn't that mean worth less? Oh, no, well, let's let's look it up. Uh, what has... Okay, thank you. Christ to Belial. And, Belial was a demon. Right, with... and I think it means worthless, and I'm wondering why the demon was called worthless, and if if they want us to be worthless by committing sins, and just if there's any practical application that we can make to our lives because of that. Because of the name Belial. I've never thought about that. What harmony is there between Christ and... Come on, come on. You know, computers. Ah, there we go. What are, okay, that's okay. It's 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 okay. Belial, Belial, which is actually in Greek spelled with an R, apparently. Um, it's a demon, um, uh, one who is utterly worthless because he is vile. That's the idea. Uh, okay. Lord of the forest. He was the lord of of uh, of 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 that which was uncivilized and tame. You see, for the, for the, for the Jews, uh, um, the context would be that, that the wilderness was where the, when Jesus went out to the desert uh, and mm-hmm. dwelt among the wild beasts, that's the idea that the uncivilized uh, is, is, is Beliar is the Lord of the uncivilized. So he's saying, don't be unequally yoked with believers. For what partnership can righteousness have with wickedness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? He's saying these, these gods, uh, I think he's, mm-hmm. he's just repeating the idea that the gods of the pagans were in fact, uh, demons. They were real, but they were demons. Uh, um, and, and, and these are demons of confusion. The God, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God uh, and Father Jesus was a God of reason. This idea of logos is reason. So, what does logos have to do with chaos? Does that help a little? Yes, that helps a lot. Thank you, Father. And uh, well, per your request, I am not going to invite you over for dinner. Oh, bless you! Unless you're a really good cook, <laughs> <laughs> and it's really cold here. You're in California, aren't you? Uh, 
So yes, yeah, I'm in the Antelope Valley. Yeah, it's oh, very pleasant. Oh, oh, is that's in the is that north Antelope Valley? No, uh, it, it's in uh, North Los Angeles County. Oh, you North Los Angeles. And it, oh, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I got relatives nice. out there. It is beautiful, and though it occasionally yeah. burns up. But other than that, oh well, it's right. beautiful. I love the high desert. Well, good to talk to you and enjoy. All right, Thank who you, we got Father. now? Oh, God bless, Mark. What who we got now? Dear voice in my head. Dan from Las Vegas, are you with us? Hi, can you hear me? I can, I can. Hello? What's your question for me? Oh, okay. Well, the the question is, um, I'm wanting to know on its in its original writing. I don't know if it was Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, or what. But in Hebrews, in in the first chapter, it says that Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. I may not mm -hmm. have quoted that correctly. What is that word express? referring to do you uh are you sure you're not quoting uh uh colossians he is the visible image of the invisible god no it's in hebrew it might have been the third chapter of hebrews hebrews one, okay let me hebrews see if i can three. find that um, it, because it says, i'm thinking says, colossians he's the, he is the yeah, express he, and image it says i know i the express they use that word express what does that express mean Okay, as you can hear, I'm clicking away, since I'm the Reverend Note All. If my if my Hebrews could it be Hebrews one three, the voice of yes That's Hebrews it. one three. Oh, this is interesting, the brightness of his glory. That's cool. Well, let's look and see what the Greek word is, and he is the the. Oh my goodness, that's interesting. It's one word, karakter. It means same as our word character. We get the word character from it, and as in character of the, uh, of the. Uh, uh, well, this is a great word. As in a character of the alphabet, and they had what they would call seals. You know that 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 you had a sealing ring or a sealing cylinder, and you would impress your seal into clay or wax, and it would be an exact inverse. Uh, of of the ring or the seal that's what that word means it is an engraving tool it is an impression an exact reproduction it is it is the 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 uh, uh the reflection of something that is carved exactly into something else that's really cool so that's that's what the word means it's it's the character the the precise reproduction does that help so I yes, and I and I have a question because you've given me that answer. Um, so it's a reproduction. N no, it's it's the exact. Uh, it's not a reproduction. It's the exact imprint. It's an imprint. So when you see Jesus, if you were to see Jesus and the Father standing together, they would look identical. I think you'd experience, that's what Jesus said at the Last Supper. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said that. Okay. So, so yeah, right. I mean, I, I have a friend uh, uh, who looks so much more like her mother than her mother does. <laughs> Seriously, you see the two oh. of them together and you think... Which one's the mother? Which one's the daughter? <laughs> Seriously, I, I I look at I look at this woman or daughter, and I say to the woman, you know, your daughter looks so much more like you than you do. Uh, 
So yeah, occasionally that happens it, with fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. So, uh, but yeah, it means the but, exact. But the bottom line. But the bottom line is the bottom line. Okay, I'm sorry, but the bottom go on, line. Go on. They both. I, they both look exactly the same. Well, I think we can carry that too far. I mean, the, the father has a beard. Jesus has a beard. I don't know that that's what it means. You know, if you could go into a time machine uh, to Nazareth and go to the carpenter shop, if Jesus had a carpenter shop, and go in, you wouldn't say, oh, what lovely blue eyes he had. you say, my, he was kind. He was so patient with me, and I'm a difficult customer. That that we tend to look at, at a physical resemblance and and physical resemblances are, are very temporary things, that there are deeper resemblances than physical. So I think we can be a little too uh, non-poetic about this. But uh, definitely the character means the precise. It, it is a, a document, a, a Xerox machine would make a, a, this character. Uh, I, I think it can. It's an exact, uh, an exact replica. So I hope that helps a little. Uh, who we got now? We got time for another question. I think. Who we got now? Barbara from Cape Coral, Florida. What is your question for me? Hi, Father. When was the first mass celebrated using the format that we use today? Oh, good grief! Um, one can, one can. Uh, Go back to um, uh, writings by Justin Martyr. I think Justin Martyr, who was 100 years after Christ. And they, they shaped the, the Novus Ordo liturgy according to those ancient Christian documents. So it's a little bit cheating. Actually, the oldest canon of all of the churches is the, the Roman canon that we do use at Mass. Uh, so that, that goes, there's a lot of additions to it, but it's very ancient. It, it probably goes back to... 250, 300 A.D. easily, but but we have stories about the Mass in, in places like Tertullian and in Justin Martyr, uh, uh, which come from a century after Christ. We also have uh, a description of Mass by Pliny the Younger, about 110 A.D., in which uh, the Mass is mentioned uh, very briefly to the Emperor Trajan, uh, in which he talks about they take ordinary food, bread and wine, and swear a sacrament uh, not to defraud anyone, uh, not to do any wrong. So, so the mass uh, conceptually, it was from the very beginning, but we do have a few examples in ancient literature of it. Though the exact form, the closest you can get to that is probably the Roman canon that we use in in. Uh, at Mass is the first of the four canons that are common. Hope that helps a little. I think I'm about to hear music in my head. Oh, we got 35 seconds. <laughs> oh, dear. You know, they, they, the second canon was supposedly modeled on a canon by Hippolytus, a Roman priest around 200. I've looked at it. It doesn't look anything like the canon of Hippolytus, but the Roman canon is genuinely ancient. There have been additions to it, but it's genuinely in part quite ancient, as I understand. But speaking of quite ancient, I'm leaving here, but Drew, who's quite young, oh, he'll be up in a couple minutes. So enjoy and uh, don't go nowhere. 